0: Well, hello, hello? It is good to see you again and welcome back to Lessons by the Lake, the Oswego Private Wealth Show. I am your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff. It is great to be back with you here today. And as always, I've got our star of the show, Mr. Bob Adratis, the Managing Director over at Oswego Private Wealth, standing by. He'll be jumping aboard with me in just a moment and we're going to be tackling another great wealth management topic. That's what we do here on the show. And today's topic, a really interesting one. We've been talking a lot about business owners primarily in these last few episodes and we're staying in that same vein here today topic of today's episode when is the best time to sell my business we're going to have some time and considerations today from an investment banker who is our special guest that's going to be joining us, uh, You know, and that's going to be Mr. Nick Stanley, managing partner over at Crown Point Partners. Really excited to have Nick aboard, and I know Bob will share a little bit of it, uh, you know insight and information into Nick's world here in just a moment, uh, but really, really looking forward to today's conversation. Again, folks, Bob Bedritus of Oswego Private Wealth, known for helping business owners become financially independent of their business. And He believes that a business owner truly deserves to maximize the value of their life's work. That's what we're doing here on the show. We're talking about business owners maximizing the value of their life's work, specifically in today's conversation, being when is the right time to sell my business? So that being said, let's go ahead and bring Bob out and get it started. Bob, it's good to see you today. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you, Ryan. Great to see you. Yeah, always good to get together, Bob. We had a great guest in Nick Stanley joining us today. I know, you know, you and Nick have a lot of conversations behind the curtains for, you know, with a lot of different reasons. And I'm excited to unpack some of those today. So I'll go ahead and toss things over to you and Nick and uh, enjoy the convo.
1: Well, thank Thank you again. And I couldn't be more excited about having Nick on the show today. And you're exactly right. We've had conversations for a lot of different reasons. Um, I came to uh, Portland 22 years ago. Uh, to be a part of a company that Nick's father was instrumental in creating. And so Nick comes from an entrepreneurial family. He's an entrepreneur himself. And when we often talk about people living an amazing life of significance, well, Nick exemplifies that. So and those of you who've been on the show before know that we define an amazing life of significance is significance of taking care of the people you love, the causes that you care about, and giving back to the world and making a difference in the world. And Nick has had a brilliant career. We're gonna ask him a little bit about that. He's had a brilliant career so far. Uh, the best I'm, I'm convinced is yet to come. And he's also deeply committed to giving back to his community. And he's been very involved and served in significant leadership roles on a number of different foundations and charities. And perhaps he'll tell us a little bit about that too. So let me introduce Nick. He is the managing director of Crown Point Partners, and I'm just so excited to have you, Nick. So Nick,
2: welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob, and Ryan. A pleasure to be here.
1: Well, it's fantastic. Well, let's start. Let's start out by letting our audience know just a little bit about you, Nick. You've had a, uh, uh, as I alluded to in the intro of the show, a little bit. You've done some really remarkable things in this town. You and I served. Uh, once upon a time on the Oregon Forum, which is an advocacy group for uh, trying to make Oregon and Portland specifically, but Oregon in general, a better place, give back to the community. And you've done so much more than that. But talk a little bit about uh, really anything you want to talk about, but give us a flavor for who you are. So.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, I'm an a Oregonian, born and raised in Portland, uh, spent seven years on the East Coast, uh, studied finance at Georgetown and then spent three years at one of the M financial affiliated firms called CMS companies, where we helped successful entrepreneurs diversify, preserve and transfer their wealth as effectively as possible to next generations as well as uh, philanthropic interests. Uh, came back to Portland in 1991 and uh, bought a printing company called Fine Arts Graphics, which was a turnaround situation. Spent eight years uh, growing that business, turning it around and then sold it to a dot-com startup in 1999. And took a small, uh, well, actually it was a long sabbatical. Uh, And then when I, uh, reverse engineered what I thought the ideal career would be. Uh, it was essentially helping people on the biggest biggest deals of their life. So I uh, joined the firm that I hired when I sold the printing company. And I've spent the last 20 years at that firm. Uh, it was called Weber Partners, uh, where we worked with entrepreneurs in the region and helped them optimize their exit. We also did some uh, other activities such as merchant banking, we would buy businesses uh, for our own account with a little bit of our money and that of other investors in the area. We would raise some uh, growth capital for regional companies uh, and also worked on some buy side engagements as well. So we've been working with entrepreneurs in the region in a variety of capacities for the past 25 years. Gail Weber uh, has recently retired, so Roger Adams and I have formed a new company called Crown Point Partners, and uh, we continue to service the uh, local business owners by helping them optimize their exit. Well, that's
1: fantastic, and you know, it's... um... Uh, often said that those who can't teach, those who can't play coach, um, uh, I've, I've run other businesses before Oswego Private Wealth that we've uh, turned into successful companies and passed on. And I think uh, in your background, that's such a critical, critical thing that uh, you've been there, you've done that. You've been on the side of the business owner selling a business. And I think that's just invaluable for your work that you do as an investment banker. Um, could you talk just a little bit, Nick, because I'm, I'm just so fascinated by all the different things that you've done uh, in terms of philanthropic work, charity work. Uh, what are you doing these days? Uh, what's near and dear to your heart?
2: Sure. Um, near and dear to my heart right now is the Knight uh, Cancer Institute up at OHSU with Brian Drucker. I've served on that committee for a decade or so, and he is uh, doing groundbreaking research in various fields of cancer. He was the founder of uh, Gleevec, or the discovery scientist, which was the really first effective personalized cancer therapeutic. Um, I'm also on the advisory uh, board of uh, the Center for Regenerative Medicine up at OHSU. I I also am the Honorary consul for Thailand, so I uh, represent uh, Thai nationals in the area and try to promote uh, foreign direct investment from the Pacific Northwest into Thailand as well as Thailand into the U.S. Still involved with the Oregon Forum and a, a couple other um, groups that take part of my energy, but frankly, I'm trying to simplify my life a little bit and, and focus on uh, fewer things, uh, but perhaps more deeply.
1: Well, and you didn't mention that you have a beautiful wife and a fantastic family, and uh, you're a real family man, so uh, I don't know how you do it. You must not sleep, um, but you look you look well, and as a cancer survivor, I really appreciate the work that you're doing uh, with the Night Cancer Center, and as a uh, as uh, not a kid anymore, I appreciate everything you're doing in regenerative medicine
2: as well. so yeah i'm also I'm also on the board of uh, uh, two other groups, uh, services for all Generations and uh, St. Anthony Village Enterprises, which are a management company for assisted living and independent living facilities and three independent living facilities themselves um, that uh, attempt to Make the economic model work in the assisted and independent living space, although it is a a challenge the way it is structured currently.
1: Well, there's another saying: if you want to get something done, ask a person who's already very busy, because uh, they kind of know the they they have the system set up to make it happen. So, um, I, anyway, fantastic background. Well, let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about CronPoint Partners, and I have a number of questions I want to ask you around. Timing considerations, understanding the buyer's perspective, uh, components of company value. Why would you even want to hire? What you know? What's what's? Where's the role for investment banker and mm-hmm. banker in this? And what's this sales process look like for somebody who's considering selling their business? Great. Um, why don't we start out by talking about sort of where is your niche? Where do you see? Uh, what kind of yeah. clients do you serve? What do you? See? Uh, who do you yeah. try to uh, step up for?
2: Uh, I believe we do have an itch. Our our primary sort is geographic. So we like to focus on representing business owners in the Pacific Northwest. We think there is value in proximity throughout this process and that is our primary sort. Uh, Our secondary sort is companies that have uh, between two and five million of EBITDA. I would say below two million of EBITDA, it's hard f- to justify our fees, frankly. Uh, and above five million EBITDA, we start to be a little less competitive with the larger firms uh, in the in the region. So there's a there's a sweet spot there, where these companies deserve more than a business broker can deliver, um, but are not uh, large enough to attract uh, the biggest investment banking firms in the area. So we think we fill a nice void there, uh, bringing sophisticated representation to the smaller end of the businesses in our region.
1: Well, that's fantastic. And and you know, uh, that's such a large pool to swim in because Oregon is a the Pacific Northwest, in general, but Oregon specifically, is a state of entrepreneurs. I mean, we have one Fortune 500, 500 company in this in the entire state of Oregon, is, and we know they have a little swoosh for their logo. We we, well, we all know who that is, uh, but this is a state of entrepreneurs, and um, and there's, that's a big pool to swim in. And I know that you're probably busier than um, than than you possibly want to be even. You have so many people that you can serve in that niche. So when you look at that niche, uh, talk. Let's talk about timing considerations. When you think about the timing of, uh, as that owner's th- considering their succession plan, their transition, uh, what types of things do you talk about?
2: Well, there's a lot. There's a lot to think about. Uh, it is a very highly personalized analysis. But one way to think about it is consider three realms the realm of the business the realm of the owners and the realm of the m a market and each of those has its own uh timing considerations but the conventional wisdom is that when all those things line up so when i'm 65 years old 70 years old and getting ready for retirement the company will be at the perfect point to be sold, and the m and a market will be very, very receptive, uh, low interest rates, a lot of aggressive buyers. And theoretically, that is the ideal scenario. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't really ever happen <laughs> or very rarely. So we like to say two out of three of those isn't bad. And uh, everybody, is well aware of the company and the life cycle and its evolution. Uh, And they're fairly well aware of their own timing dynamics within their family considerations, but often ignore the third element, which is the receptivity of the M&A market. And we've spent the last 10 years preaching to business owners that this is a fantastic time to sell. Uh, And it has been because interest rates have been at all time lows. The the strongest uh, predictor of the receptivity of the M&A market is interest rates. Um, And that is uh, directly influences the prices that these buyers can pay uh, for the companies they are looking to acquire. Obviously when the price of debt goes up, you can use less of it prudently. Therefore you can afford to pay less for a company or in in the parlance of the industry, the multiples on companies tend to go down as the cost of capital goes up. So we just have been through uh, a year of increasing capital costs and that takes a while for it to trickle down to the M&A marketplace but it is happening and will continue to happen and it'll manifest itself in slightly lower multiples
1: well that that's so interesting that trilogy because when most people think about about maximizing the value for their business for their life's work they probably think original uh, most most predominantly they just think about where i am in the in the company do i have that succession management do I have a team I can trust? Am I ready to sell this business? But thinking about the M&A market probably isn't someplace that most people go. And then that third piece of the this trilogy of the of the owner situation, whether they're health considerations, family considerations, um, there are just so many factors that go into it. And uh, I like what you said, a two out of three ain't bad. If, all three, if the stars align for all three, then that's obviously just a home run. Uh, but we are as you mentioned as we're recording this uh, we're in a time of increasing inflation increasing interest rates uh, that may or may not last for a long period of time we don't know uh, but that is obviously a factor and then when you move into nick when you move into considering that buyer's perspective uh, again it's so hard for us often to put ourselves in another person's shoes we're we're the seller we're you know think about all the things we want to think about as a seller but as we think about the buyer, what are the types of things that somebody should be considering as they consider that understanding that buyer's perspective? The
2: buyer's perspective. Well, it's um, a good question. Uh, are you?
1: you know, I, well, let me, let, me, let me go a little deeper on that. You know, uh, there are types of buyers, right? There's an internal transfer. There's a... Uh, Succession manage, management are planning to uh, transfer to your company. They're third party buyers. Uh, they all have different motivations. There are different value drivers within, within them all. That's uh, kind of driving toward that. So
2: there are clearly different types of buyers, and the two fundamentally different types of buyers, would we would define as strategic buyers versus financial buyers. So a strategic buyer is somebody that is in the industry either directly or potentially tangentially. Uh, And those are, uh, that's who those are. The financial buyers are uh, anybody that is buying the company based purely on its financial performance. So those are private equity buyers um, initially. Uh, but then they become a hybrid. They become a financial slash strategic buyer because they grow through acquisition. Private equity firms typically deploy a process where they will establish a platform in a sector, which is a company of uh, meaningful size to that private equity firm, and then add on to that platform by buying additional companies typically of smaller size and sometimes those companies can be very small because they are so accretive um and uh so typically private equity firms that we deal with for the clients we represent are private equity firms that buy companies with Uh, 2 to 10 million of EBITDA uh, as a platform. Once that platform is established, then they will add on to that, and they will add on companies that have as low as 1 million of EBITDA, even though their stated threshold is 2 million, because of the the logic and the synergies of adding adding on.
1: yeah, no, that's a very good point. And, and, and I'm sure you would agree that there's no one is better than the other. It really depends on, again, going back to the timing considerations and the, t- the owner's needs and the future of what they see is the best future for the business and the financial buyer or the strategic buyer, depending on the situation, one may be better than the other in that situation, but there's no blanket one is better than the other, correct?
2: No, that's correct. Not necessarily. Um, it's It's sometimes easier to work with financial buyers because they're professionals and they do it every day. Um, But then again, they're professionals and they do it every day. Uh, So sometimes that uh, is a challenge. Do
1: you see see, Nick, the occasional dorsal fin coming up out of the back of their pinstripes there?
2: Absolutely, I mean, our advice to business owners is to hire uh, representation if it's not us hire somebody else because if this is the first time you've sold a business of significance and you're selling it to somebody that does it every day uh you know the table's not balanced there there's a lot of sophisticated very smart people that will overwhelm uh the typical entrepreneur with um with data requests and and oftentimes, you know, they um, they can get taken advantage of. Uh, it's their job to buy these companies as cheaply as possible, and um, the only way to avoid being taken advantage of is to understand the tools, techniques, and strategies they are deploying, and and be able to combat them equally.
1: Yeah, um, and that and that and that is where you and Crown Point Partners come in. Because you've seen so, you've, done, you've done so many deals and you've seen so many variations of how deals can go south or be successfully completed, uh, that you're a real advocate for that business owner and helping them get the deal done at the multiple they want, at the price that they want, and under the terms that they want.
2: Yes, but we don't do it just because uh, we're smart. We do it because uh, we engineer a competitive environment there is really no other way to optimize the outcome other than engineering a competitive environment. Uh, and that's that's not necessarily the environment that the buyer wants to find himself. Uh, what he'd like to do is we, we call the bear hug and it's, it happens all the time where they'll come in and seduce the business owner into believing that they're they are the best option for whatever reason. Uh, and they tie them up, lock them up for three to six months where they can't talk to other potential buyers and try to you know, negotiate an effective transaction. And I don't know if you've ever tried to negotiate against a single individual, but it's really, really hard. It's uh, almost impossible to push the envelope if there's just one buyer in the group. Um, you need to engineer a competitive environment in order to optimize the outcome.
1: Well, absolutely. and and that's a great value. that That bear hug is something that I've seen many, many times where it really is a frustrating situation and does not go to the result that the that the seller wants. Uh, when they when they get in that situation, and it right. it, it loo- they lose so much time uh, to go through that, and there's such frustration, and that's a period of their lives that they they'd like to take back if they possibly could. Um, that competitive engineering and competitive environment certainly is of great, great value. Um, and anything else in understanding a buyer's perspective, Nick, that you would uh, point out to us or
2: Well, um, every buyer' is different. So it's a it's a customized approach. Um, you need to understand, you know, the other companies that are on their platform, and how your specific client can be the you know missing piece of the puzzle. Um, so oftentimes, business owners are afraid to speak about their weaknesses. But in reality, those weaknesses are opportunities for the right buyer. If they've got strengths in the areas that you're you're weak in, that is that is a great opportunity because they can add value there.
1: Um, I, I love I love that you're I love that you're saying that because that's so uh, so fundamental to how I view exit planning, succession planning, transferring or selling a business. Is the truth is no exceptions. The truth is always, always, always where you want to go in these in any conversation, in any business transactions. And sometimes the seller wants to hold things back, be a little more opaque, and they don't understand that by by putting everything out there, that the they even become more attractive to that buyer because they can see where they can increase revenue because they have synergies there that don't exist in the existing company. And honestly, they, so, so often that buyer, that seller rather, is just shooting themselves in the foot by not trying to disclose all of the the good, the bad and the ugly of their company.
2: Absolutely. You can't hide the ball. Uh, you can't hide the strengths or the weaknesses and you wouldn't want to. Uh, first of all, you need to maintain your credibility throughout this process. If It's, it's very hard to, to build, but very easy to assassinate um so we you know we <laughs> we we don't work with people we don't trust let me put it that way uh we're very very selective on how we allocate our bandwidth and our clients need to be one uh, trustworthy and honest two um you know uh value our uh, expertise and opinions and uh three be committed to the process so uh, if we feel the owners are just uh you know kind of testing the waters um that's that that doesn't make sense for anybody you don't want to go out to market and not sell the business because then that becomes part of the history of the company uh which doesn't look well doesn't look good um No, I I love that.
1: Well, you brought up process. Talk a little bit about the process. What does that sales process look like, Dave?
2: Sure. Uh, So um, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like a business owner informally contacting his competitors, you know, and feeling them out uh, sequentially. Um, That is the worst scenario, but it happens all the time. The best best process is one that puts together a compelling and comprehensive uh, confidential information memorandum. And that takes a couple of months of work in really trying to figure out what it is the company is successful at and what they do best and how they do that and what the future opportunities are for that company in the marketplace, where that company positions itself within the competitive landscape. Um, And so we we spend a lot of time understanding in detail uh, the value drivers of that particular business. And then we translate that into uh, a 40 page document that, illustrates those value drivers uh, to potential buyers. And then we think really hard and long about who this company would be attractive to as an acquisition. Um, So from a financial perspective, uh, we identify the private equity firms that like that size of company and that have articulated, they are interested in those specific verticals. Um, We put together a a prospect, prospective buyer list and we leverage the best databases available. We use PitchBook, which is the best in our opinion in uh, private company uh, and investor data. So we'll put together a list of potentially you know, 50 prospective buyers and then run through each of those with the owners uh, to make sure that they agree that this is a good candidate. And then we will prioritize those buyers and come up with a, uh, you know, phase one group of 25 to 30. In addition to the confidential uh, information memorandum, we also Uh, recognize that buyers are highly concerned about confidentiality. It's a risk to their current customers. It's a risk to their employees and perhaps a risk to future prospective customers if the word gets out that they are gonna be sold. So we go to great lengths to ensure confidentiality throughout this process as far as we can. And the way that's accomplished is putting together a one-page teaser is what we call it and it's an anonymous summary of the company that speaks to what buyers are interested in all on one page we will then um, make phone calls initially uh, to these prospective buyers and then follow up with emails to see if they would like to review the teaser they say yes, then we send them the teaser. We follow up and ask them whether they'd like to see the confidential information memorandum. They say yes, then we send them a non-disclosure agreement. We get that back, we get that signed, and then we will send them the confidential information memorandum, give them a week or two to digest that, and then follow up with uh, in-person phone calls or Zoom calls to answer their questions. After an initial round of questions, they'll often have a subsequent round of questions. We'll answer those and then often try to introduce them to the owners uh, to have a, an exchange there. Uh, you know, the chemistry is 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 one of the considerations here as well. And so we want to make sure that buyer and company are aligned uh, from a corporate Perspective, a cultural perspective, a business philosophy perspective, an interpersonal perspective. and so um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of calculus that goes on in determining the ideal fit there.
1: Well, that sounds like such a thorough and complete process, and you have that process in place, and I, I hope everybody heard loud and clear calling all of your competitors and informally one by one, <laughs> floating the idea. Not a good idea. If you heard nothing else, not a good idea. You need a process, a systematic process. Uh, Nick and uh, uh, and his team are obviously very well versed in this.
2: Bob, I just Please. echo what you said. The best processes, in our mind, are 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 ones that are comprehensive and systematic. So the ad hoc approach is the worst approach. Um, you want to be uh, you want to make sure you're talking to the best people uh, and and doing it at the right time. And mm-hmm. determining who that is, uh, takes quite a bit of work. Um, but that's you know that's what we get paid for. One of the things.
1: and I would imagine and I would imagine, Nick, as as you go through your your systematic process and you're looking at all these drivers, these levers, these multiple levers. Did uh, you probably uh, uh, uncover and uh, unearth some pretty low-hanging fruit where businesses can improve their their cash flows, their expense side? Uh, almost some business consulting comes in—not almost, but some business consulting comes in to get that higher EBITDA multiple driver based on the work you're doing as you're make doing this system as the process is going forward.
2: So one of the um, one of the challenges that that we that we end up working with is, is companies aren't necessarily ready to be sold when they want to sell and often it revolves around their management information systems or their accounting um, it needs to be accurate they need to have uh, reliable information they need to be able to be responsive to questions when buyers ask them so if buyer says, can you send me monthly uh, financials over the past year and um, also a breakdown of your customer concentration You know, for the last few years? If you can't produce that in a few days, that's going to cause them to believe that your systems are not very sophisticated and maybe they don't trust the numbers as much as they would. Um, it uh, it's a situation where uh, you you better be ready to go when when you when the gun goes off. And a lot of firms are now utilizing quality of earnings reports. Um, so we're starting to think that um, perhaps it makes sense for the owners to have that done ahead of time. So when the buyer is in a position to want it, they don't have to do it; they already have it. Yes, it costs a little bit more money up front, but uh, prudent investment in our in our belief.
1: Nick, I couldn't agree with you more about that. Um, I I have a mantra that I believe every business should be transition ready, even if they don't think they're going to transition their business for another decade or two. Because you just don't know. I mean, I mentioned a little bit earlier, I'm a cancer survivor. Uh, There was a period six years ago uh, where I didn't know if I was going to live or I was going to die, what was going to happen to my business, was everything in place. Uh, Things happen. Life is messy. And I believe everybody should be transition ready, even if they have no intention of selling the business uh, the day after tomorrow, but maybe five or 10 or 20 years from now.
2: Yes. Yes, I mean there's lots of motiva- legitimate motivations to sell, and um, you know one is that uh, you know your life and family circumstances. Um, so even if the even if the com- company is not necessarily at the optimal stage, and the M and A market isn't necessarily at the optimal stage, if you have things going in your on in your life. That um, you know would benefit greatly from the monetization of this asset. Um, you know it's it's still a good idea. It's still a good idea, even though it's only one of three. And oftentimes, business owners are unaware of how much risk they're taking by continuing to operate their business. Let's just briefly think about the sixty-five-year-old entrepreneur, uh, who has 80% of his net worth or more tied up in this operating business. You know, you look at the efficient frontier. He's, he's way out there on the risk level and he's probably the return he's getting is probably significantly below the optimal portfolio for that amount of risk. So if you were to sell the business, he could keep the same risk profile that he has now, but dramatically increase his return by just investing in a globally diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, or he can dramatically reduce the risk he's taking and maintain the level of return he's getting on his business. Um, so business owners often underestimate the amount of risk of 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 holding that amount of wealth in one operating business especially at the age of 65 so and
1: as we've gone through these covid years um i think a lot of business owners have really considered what you're saying right now is just for the for the as- for the investment for the assets for the business what is my return in terms of cash flow for the amount of risk that i'm taking and i so agree with you nick that that's something that a uh, a conversation that should be um
2: should be helpful. right. And business owners often tend to think about it in a binary fashion. Sell hundred percent of the business or none. And um that's not the you know, the real option set. Uh taking a half step out, selling a majority or even minority portion of the business to a private equity firm. What we call the second bite of the apple strategy has worked out very, very well for a lot of our clients. Because when a private equity firm comes in and let's say buys 75% of the business, they bring a combination of capital and talent to that business and grow it at a rate over the next five years that that you would have taken maybe 20 to get to if you were on your own. Uh, And subsequently, consequently, that 25% of the business five years down the road is worth much more than the 75% of the business was when you sold. It also allows the business owner to stay involved to a degree, perhaps sit on the board. What's often the case is that the risk profile of the business owner uh, tends to become more conservative as they age, as is appropriate but the risk profile of the business needs to be more aggressive in order to compete. So you have this divergent, these divergent risk profiles. Uh, it's, it's right for the business owner, but maybe not right for the company. Um, so bringing in additional capital and talent that can take those risks with the business and grow it to a size um, down the road, um, often results in the uh, minority interest being worth a lot more than the majority interest on the first sale. So we call that the second bite of the apple.
1: Second bite of the apple. I'm learning, I'm I, I'm. Well, learning, I, I'm hearing great terms, I hope our audience is learning about bear hugs, second bite of the apple, there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great stuff here. Hey, Nick, I cannot thank you enough for taking your time and imparting your knowledge and your expertise on, on uh, process and how we do things. Uh, clearly, if anybody's has asked themselves a question before tuning in, why would I hire an invest, investment banker? What's the value of that? Um, I'm con- confident that they heard they heard the answer to that and why it's prudent to use an investment banker in it the most major transaction of their life. Yeah, well, the
2: the bottom line is uh, they're going to end up with more net of fees than if they didn't. Um, And they also need to focus on, you know, keeping the business running well. Uh, The last quarter uh, takes on a disproportionate amount of importance because the buyers will extrapolate any negative trend out or walk away. So the business owners really need to focus on the business and, um, you know, subcontract out the shoe leather work that investment bankers are doing. Uh, and it is a lot of work. I mean, we we work with one or two clients a year. Um, and it's a full time job for my partner and I. So to have an owner try to do it with his you know excess time is a real challenge now the owners will be intimately involved in the process we will need to liberate their best thinking uh, about the business and the competitive landscape but uh yes uh find somebody to either the bandwidth and the shoe leather somebody you trust first and foremost you need to trust them absolutely um and uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's yeah, it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Nick, thank you again. Nick Stanley, Crown Point Partners. So wonderful to have you on the Oswego Private Wealth Show today. Uh, for our audience, we're going to post uh, information on Crown Point and yourself on, this, on the show notes and everything. But uh, tell us the best way to reach you if somebody uh, was intrigued by this conversation, would like to have a follow-up conversation
2: sure the best way would be go to our website crownpointpartners.com and there are uh tabs that they can they can touch to get in touch with us directly and and we'll have a phone call or a zoom call or meet in person
1: well thank you and and nick thank you once again and uh, we often talk about living that amazing life of significance taking care of the people you love the causes you care about and making a difference in the world and that, my friend, is what you're doing every day. And I am so thankful and appreciative to have you on the show today. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you, Bob. And thank you for what you do because it's clearly needed out there. Appreciate it. So. All
0: right. Well, gentlemen, really appreciate you both carving some time out of the day to to jump into such a big conversation. That idea of when is the right time, you know, the timeliness of selling your business as clearly Nick alluded to, there are so many more factors than simply just the right time. There's a lot to consider here. Uh, a lot of great wisdom from both Bob and Nick today and again as Bob mentioned, if anybody out there in the audience took anything away from today's conversation or benefited from it in any way shape or form, you know they can always reach out to Bob or Nick directly or of course you can always subscribe to this show here on whichever platform you checked us out on today. That way you never miss out on a future episode where you know we have great wealth management conversations with even better guests uh, and dive into these different worlds of wealth management to enhance your personal financial world. Before Bob, for Nick, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long, but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us today on Lessons by the Lake. Oswego Private Wealth Management podcast may have been previously disseminated by Bob Adritus on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Bob Adritus or his guest as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only an expression of his or his guest's opinion. Adritus' opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither Oswego Private Wealth Management nor its affiliates warrant its completeness or accuracy and it should not be relied upon as such. Pedratis and Oswego Private Wealth Management are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided. Investment advice offered by Oswego Private Wealth Management and does not guarantee any specific outcome or performance you must make an independent decision regarding investments and strategies mentioned by bedritus or a guest before acting on information you hear you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial or investment advisor This information is for general purposes only and is not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Oswego Private Wealth Management does not provide legal, tax, mortgage advice, or services. Please consult your legal tax advisor regarding your specific situation.